Dr. Stephen Finlay is the Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Southern California. He has published about a dozen journal articles and book chapters on the subjects of metaethics, and today we're going to talk about his article, The Error in the Error Theory, which won the 2009 Best Paper Award for one of the most prestigious philosophy journals in the world, the Australasian Journal of Philosophy. Dr. Finlay, welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Thank you. My website has two subjects, philosophy of religion and metaethics. Many of my readers and I can say things like, I used to be a Christian, but now I'm not, or I used to be an atheist, but now I'm not. You used to be an error theorist, but now you're not. Could you explain what is error theory and what was so appealing to you about it initially? To put it very simply, error theory is the view that all moral claims are false, because uh, there are no moral facts or properties in the world. Just so a good analogy is um, the atheist. The atheist is an error theory. Is an error theorist about religion. Um, all religious claims are false um, because there is no God. So um, the error theorist in morality is holds the same position as the atheist uh, in relation to metaethics. Um, because there are no moral values, therefore moral claims are all false. Or at least positive moral claims, because um, negative moral claims, like it's not wrong to steal, all turn out to be true because nothing is actually wrong. Yeah. Um, now, was there another part to your question? How did yeah, what was to... so initially appealing to you about error okay. theory as opposed to even like non-cognitivism? Right, well, um, in my paper I start out by... by pointing out that I'm a New Zealander, and um, there, there is an interesting connection between error theory and um, being an Australasian, a New Zealander or an Australian. Most of the best-known error theorists um, have been. I had become sceptical about morality uh, very early on, um, I guess as a teenager. Uh, maybe as early as 12, 13, I had started to become very mm. puzzled about people's moral claims. Or more broadly, actually not just moral claims, but evaluative claims. I was actually a skeptic about the existence of value. That's further than even Mackie would go. Yes, much further than Mackie. Um, and I, I trace it back to being, um, I guess in existentialist terms, to feeling an outsider, a member of different communities with conflicting value judgments. I remember being in school and um, being able to see the point of a lot of different ways of evaluating things and not seeing any of them as being objectively correct. Hmm. Uh, thinking it was a matter of perspective, I very early developed a, um, a appreciation of, of Friedrich Nietzsche's philosophy once I got to university, uh, because I felt he was articulating the same view that evaluation is all a matter of perspective. Um, but yet you asked why not a non-cognitivist, so a um, non-cognitivist thinks that when we make moral claims we're just not trying to state facts, uh, we're just expressing our feelings. Certainly, the I, I guess before I became acquainted with non-cognitivism at university, um, it had never even occurred to me as an option, so I, I guess you can see that as just an instinctive reaction to um, our practices of evaluation as being intended to be factual. Uh, we disagree about these things. And so, um, you know, I think non-cognitivism has to do all sorts of fancy tricks in order to accomplish, accommodate the appearances. 
Um, so when I when I first encountered moral theory, um, my fresh, freshman year at university, uh, I was instantly disposed to be a skeptic. You know, these questions: what's right, what's wrong? The answer is no, nothing is right. <laughs> uh, nothing is wrong. Wow. Well, I think most people don't go there because it's hard to stomach the notion that murder is not wrong or rape is not wrong, but you still looked at the moral world and you said there's just no basis to make objective claims of that, of that type. Well, I think um, that's a very effective way of arguing against error theory. Yeah. And when I present these sorts of things in class, um, if I want to get people's intuitions going in, in a sceptical way, then I start talking about things like dietary requirements <laughs> and sexual morality and so forth. And it's very easy to get intuitions from most people that yeah, there aren't any facts about what, what's right or wrong there. Yeah. So the challenge is, well, what about the Holocaust? <laughs> yeah. What about rape and murder um, and torture? I think the, it's easy to come to error theory by thinking about the, the more benign types of moral dilemmas, moral disagreements. Um, and then the test of one's convictions is uh, comes in one's ability, one's willingness to... Um, confront those more vicious types of acts. Yeah. Uh, and I was at the time I was I was I was struggling with it at the time I think because I was willing to bite the bullet. The way I would have expressed it was, well yeah of course I don't I I hate those things. I think they're horrible, but that doesn't mean that you know, there's a property of wrongness that they have. Yeah. That's a hard thing to do. Uh, even for like when I was coming out of Christianity and having doubts about the faith, I felt very strongly in my heart that there was a God and that I had experienced Him personally. But um, I, I think that's the ultimate bias, is when you feel something inside yourself, if you're willing to look at the facts that contradict something that's so ingrained in the way that you feel, um, that's really admirable, I think. And it sounds like you were able to do that at a pretty young age about morality. I did sort of see this as my calling <laughs> um, when I first encountered these questions. I never encountered philosophy at high school. When I did encounter it at university, largely by accident, um, my reaction was, my God, you can actually do this stuff at university? Right? I, my whole life, when if I'd ever asked questions like that, people reacted like these weren't serious questions. <laughs> um, so for me, it was, it was a homecoming. Yeah, my, my present academic career is a continuation. Of, I, I trace it back to questions I was asking when I was 11 or 12. But well, I, I should perhaps say, that, I mean, the challenge that you put to me when you say, but what about murder and rape? I mean, it's a very appropriate challenge, and it is also part of why I now think that era theory is false. Hmm. I think that, that instinct to say, well, yes, those things are wrong, um, is an instinct that can be vindicated, I think. And ultimately, I've, I've come full circle and... Um, come to think that it can be vindicated. I used to be an error theorist too, but now I'm not. And for roughly the same reasons that you gave in your article, The Error in the Error Theory, which is why I was so excited to read your paper, but your paper takes an unusual strategy against error theory. Uh, could you explain what the usual strategy against error theory is? Well, first what error theory is uh, in the way that Joyce constructs it, uh, and then what your strategy is against error theory? Okay, so um, I said before that error theory um, is the claim that 
you know, there are no moral facts. But then why be an error theorist? What's the motivation for error theory? There could potentially be many different reasons for thinking that there can't be such things as moral facts. Um, but at least the recent history of philosophy has, has been motivated by one particular uh, sort of scepticism. And that's a scepticism about the, author the rational authority of uh, morality. So it's an idea which goes back at least to Kant, that morality consists, Immanuel Kant, German philosopher, um, that moral requirements consist in categorical imperatives. Um, that um, unlike perhaps prudence and certainly you know, um, ordinary advice, judgments of, of um, advice, when it comes to what you morally ought to do or ought not to do, it's supposed that this doesn't in any way depend upon your desires or your cares or what interests you. Um, the fact that you know, a pedophile might not care about the well-being of his, of his victims, that perhaps he doesn't even care if he gets caught, um, that his desires are best satisfied by abusing children, we can recognize all of that and it doesn't deter us from judging that the pedophile ought not to abuse children, that it's morally wrong uh, for him to do so. So um, the, the idea of morality being categorically imperative is the idea that um, moral right and wrong gives us reasons independently of our desires or what we care about. Um, that comes in conflict with a very widespread view about reasons and, ration and rationality, which is that what you have a reason to do depends on what your desires are, uh, and what's rational for you to do depends also on what, what your desires are. Um, so people who accept the desire-based view of reasons and rationality um, and then accept that morality consists of categorical imperatives uh, see attention there, and um, that's the usual reason, I think, why philosophers then decide to become, uh, become error theorists about morality. There's those two steps, and... It seems like most ethical theorists would attack step one, or excuse me, step two, saying that absolutism is false. They would say, well, no, 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 there is a sense in which absolutism is true, and therefore morality succeeds and we can condemn the Holocaust. Um, but that's not the strategy that you take. Right. So one way of laying out error theory is that it consists of two, two basic claims. One is um, moral concepts, moral practice presupposes um, a certain theory of how things are, which is absolutism on this view. The second part of the error theory is that theory is false. There is nothing which has those properties, those characteristics. Most opponents of the error theory accept the error theory's characterization of um, the assumptions and moral concepts, what has to be true for morality to be, morality to be true, but they reject the error theorist's claim that this thing doesn't exist. In particular, the desire-based theories of reasons and rationality are controversial, uh, and many philosophers reject them. Myself, I, uh, part of the reason I, became an, I was an error theorist in the first place was because I did accept that reasons and rationality are, um, have a very close connection with people's psychological states, their desires and concerns. So, in that respect, I agree with the error theorist. My eventual uh, rejection of the error theory is due to my uh, coming, eventually coming to see that, or coming to believe that, 
it's not really true that ordinary moral practice is committed to that assumption, which, like the theorist, I find faulty. Mm, yeah. If you reject the idea that moral utterances are centrally committed to the notion of absolutism about value, then it seems like we're having a debate about the meaning of moral terms. What does it mean to say that something is morally good, or what do we mean when we say that you ought to do something with a moral ought? But how would we argue about such things? Don't we just look that up in a dictionary and, and that settles it? Yes, I, I think it's true that what we're arguing about here is what moral words mean, whether there's a presupposition of absolutism in the very meaning of moral right and wrong. Um, how do we settle these things? Yeah, the dictionary is good for most purposes, but there are, there are cases where a dictionary isn't the thing to trust, particularly in philosophical issues. Dictionary entries are written by people. And uh, actually I'm quite impressed by how good the people who write dictionaries are at figuring out exactly what words mean. But on some topics of, that are particularly philosophically difficult, the insight in a dictionary falls a long way short of what the philosopher needs to, to make, make or reject a case. Mm -hmm. So we would hope, you know, if, if a philosopher is an expert in a certain word, the meaning of certain expressions in language, then we would hope that you know, ultimately the dictionaries will defer to us, not the other way around. <laughs> They'll call you up when they want to define morality. Yes. <laughs> well, so if we can't just look in a dictionary, how do we argue about what people mean when they use moral terms? Well, if it's a question of what ordinary people mean when they use the word, then I think the best evidence comes from just looking at the totality of our practices and using the word. Uh, when do people have a linguistic intuition that it's appropriate to call something right? When do they not have that intuition? Um, you have to look at the extension of that data um, to figure out what people's meanings are. Because there is another way which is just to introspect, right? to think about your own usage of the word and think about what the conditions are under which you think it's appropriate to call something right or wrong. And to a large degree, that is what philosophers do. But unfortunately, we're notoriously unreliable at detecting our own, um, understanding our own concepts. And partly that's what ad what's at issue in my paper. Because if I'm right, then um, lots of other philosophers, the error theorists and those who agree with them at <coughs> least that morality um, includes moral concepts, include this assumption of absolutism, uh, are actually mistaken about their moral concepts. Yeah. But then on the other hand, if they're right, then I'm mistaken about my moral concepts. So. Um, yeah. Well, and the evidence that you consider takes the form of an inference to the best explanation, which is, you know, abductive reasoning is very common in the sciences. So here we're actually going out into the world and looking at what's the best explanation of people's moral utterances uh, we're not just sitting in our armchair and thinking about the concepts. And so you actually tease out, I think, seven different kinds of evidence that we can look at in people's moral utterances in order to determine what are their assumptions when they're using these moral terms. Um, so I thought maybe just to clear up how that kind of argument would work, we'd look at just one uh, of your evidences, your types of evidence that you talk about. And that the first one... Uh, 
is, uh, is reflective evidence. Reflective evidence would consist of the theories that people offer to back up their moral judgments. So when people think about what they're doing, what do they say they're doing when they're making moral claims? And Richard Joyce, who's um, maybe the most preeminent living error theorist, would say that reflective evidence shows that people have an assumption of absolutism about their moral in their moral utterances. But you would say that the reflective evidence is just as compatible with a relational view of value as with an absolutist view of value. How does that work? What do you see there? Okay, so let me back up a little bit. Sure. Um, the error theorists, and just absolutists more generally, think that there is decisive evidence that moral concepts have absolutism built into them. And one of the main things I try to do in my paper is to go through piecemeal and look at all this supposed evidence and argue that it's not really um, such clear evidence for their conclusion as they've supposed, that it can all be explained in other ways. Uh, um, so I do distinguish seven different types of evidence that um, absolutists can appeal to. What I call reflective evidence is just the very first one. Uh, it's just the evidence of what people say when asked about what their practice is. Yeah. I think reflective evidence for absolutism is very weak indeed. Uh, and in fact, Joyce himself goes on to say that um, his argument doesn't turn on, quote, what people will say when asked. Um, so I, I don't think that many absolutists think that this is the decisive, the decisive evidence. Uh, but the evidence here is just supposed to be the fact that ordinary people think that moral morality has to be absolute, uh, have absolute authority when, when you ask them about it. One problem about this is it's just false. I mean, as a, as a statistical matter, yeah, a lot of people have or report having absolutist intuitions, but a great many people famously are disposed to be relativistic about morality. Yeah. And in fact, um, one thing that I point towards is that data show that the more educated people are, the more likely they are to be relative, have relativistic intuitions rather than absolutist intuitions about their morality. So for that reason alone, I think that the reflective evidence is, is very weak. Um, a second reason is the, the evidence is weak comes from considering what the point of moral discourse is in any case. One of the central points of, of um, getting involved in moral disagreements and expressing moral judgments is to try to influence people's behaviour and people's thinking about things. And everybody agrees that um, the idea of absolute authority is um, helpful as a device for um, giving one's moral claims more influential force. So there is reasons to suspect that um, when people do report absolutist intuitions, that this is really to be explained as they're just trying to secure the maximum amount of uh, rhetorical or psychological force for their, their moral positions. Right. You can be more, you can influence somebody's behavior better if you say, this is wrong, and I don't just mean relativistically, but it's a fact of the universe that this is wrong and it needs to change. Right. And one other way I respond to reflective evidence is to point out that um, you have to be careful in how you interpret what people say. And 
the mere fact that someone says, look, it's, it's, for example, it's wrong and it doesn't, and what I think, what I care about and what I think about it doesn't make any difference. It would still be wrong even if I didn't care this way. Um, you don't have to be an absolutist about authority in order to um, be able to accept a claim like that. Hmm. Um, that is, it might be wrong relative to what I, in fact, happen to care about, and it would still be wrong in relation to what I, in fact, happen to care about, even if, even in a circumstance where I actually cared about something different. Uh-huh. Um, so to make sense of that, you have to index the actuallys to the right, in the right way. Um, but so, for example, uh, if when I say it's just wrong, I mean um, it's just wrong in respect of people's well-being. And what I care about makes no difference to that. That would be true, right, even if I didn't care about well-being. Mm-hmm. That would still be the case. Yeah. So, for a number of reasons, I think um, you have to be very careful about reflective evidence. Yeah. And you continue to do that throughout your paper with other types of evidence that absolutists bring out to say that the best explanation of this evidence is that absolutism is a central uh, assumption of moral discourse, and you keep showing one after another that, well, not necessarily. It, it might be just as compatible with a relational assumption of, of moral value. Um, but I'd love to move on to the second part of your paper where, <laughs> and this almost, the first time I read it, it almost seemed just arrogant and preposterous, but you argue that even if it was true that all moral discourse assumed absolutism, it still might not be the case that moral discourse fails. Yeah, so give, let me give you an analogy. There, there are some pretty forceful analogies. Take water. Right. Yeah. Um, for, for a very long period of history, uh, almost everybody believed, anyone who had ever thought about it, believed that water was an element. Water is not an element. Um, but if that assumption infected the concept, the very meaning of the word water, then, and so if we said, well, um, when people um, talked about water, they, would, they were ref- talking about an element, then we would have to conclude that, nobody, that none of those people ever successfully talked about, thought about, referred to water, until um, you know, Lavoisier comes along and discovers that water is a compound of hydrogen and oxygen um, ions, uh, until that point, nobody ever thought about talked about water. That seems absurd, yeah. right? It's, so it seems that people do succeed in thinking about and talking about things, even when there's a ubiquitous false assumption about its nature. Yeah. Um, so the simple that that's the basic point there, that even if everybody was making a false assumption about something, it doesn't follow that they fail to refer to something that is real. Yeah. That they fail to say something that is true. Yeah. So, basically, you and Joyce kind of have a, a back and forth about this in your papers, um, in that it seems like we're trying to feel our way towards the truth about what moral terms actually mean and what they're centrally committed to by making analogy to things that we're very certain about it. Like, we're very certain that people did not fail to say true things about water before uh, we discovered that water was not an element. Um, But there are other cases where error theory seems appropriate. Um, Mm -hmm. For example, in regards to atheism, if it's true that God does not exist, it does seem like 
all of the theological statements about the properties of God all fail to be true because there is no reference for God. Um, another case we talk about is witches. Um, if you say things about witches uh, re- that depend on the assumption that they have supernatural powers, it would seem that all of those statements are false. Or uh, Joyce's favorite is phlogiston, yeah. which I had never heard of before, but apparently that was a old theory in physics or something where um, in flammable materials there was a substance called phlogiston which was released during combustion and that turns out to not be true so it seems like all of our statements about phlogiston were false because there was no such thing as phlogiston but then there are the other examples like you gave the one of water and another is motion it seems like for a very long time uh, people had an assumption that motion was absolutist and that, that's an even clearer parallel to the moral one uh, where they were all talking about motion as if it was absolute, and now we've discovered that um, there's no justification for that. Everything, all motion is relative to something else. Uh, But we wouldn't say that everybody was making false claims about the motion of a ship from one port to another or whatever. Uh, So how would we decide which analogy is closest to the moral moral case and moral terms? Because Joyce says that the deciding factor is here is what he calls the point, the whole point of moral discourse. And uh, you have another idea about that. Okay, well you summarized it very nicely. Um, I mean, Joyce sets up Joyce sets up the problem very cleanly. He says, the, the distinction between motion on one hand and uh, phlogiston and um, witches on the other is Joyce's layout. Mm-hmm. And so he rightly asks the question, so given that we're inclined to try to want to rescue motion discourse and say that it was true even if there were false assumptions embedded in it, but that we want to reject the witches and phlogiston discourse, um, what's the criteria for deciding whether or not whether or not this discourse is successful or unsuccessful? Right. The idea being that once we once we settle what the determining criterion is for when false assumptions make a discourse false and when they do not then we can apply this to the moral case and decide whether whether moral talk is like emotion talk or whether moral talk is like phlogiston and witch talk so Joyce's answer is it has to do with the point and this is where I think the point of the discourse if the discourse still has the same point once we have realised that these false assumptions are false and we've given up the false assumptions then he wants to say um, we should consider it true, we should consider it successful. Um, whereas if an assumption removes the whole point of a discourse, then we should think that that assumption is built into the concept and therefore we should just abandon the discourse um, when we, we discover that the assumption is false. Here I think Joyce gets himself into trouble. Um, obviously he's an error theorist so he thinks that the point of moral discourse is something which turns out um, to be undermined once uh, we realize the false, falseness of this assumption mm-hmm. the problem is that Joyce doesn't think that we should abandon or give up moral talk <laughs> he thinks that moral talk is very important um, in fact he, he's, he classifies himself as a fictionalist 
And a fictionalist <clears throat> is someone who, a fictionalist about X is someone who thinks that X doesn't exist, but nonetheless it's very helpful and useful to talk as if X did exist. Yeah. So you know, fictionalists about numbers think that numbers don't exist, but it's very helpful and practical to talk as if they did. Yeah. Um, but of course, if it's helpful and useful to talk as if moral facts existed, then there is has to be a point yeah. to talk about moral facts. So I, I suggest, I, I think the way that you have to understand Joyce's point is um, not all point, not all possible points or utilities of a discourse are important for determining what the terms in it mean. That what you have to look at is the referential point, the point, at the point of referring to a certain sort of thing. So we think in the case of phlogiston, the point of uh, the referential point of phlogiston is to talk about that stuff, whatever it is, that's contained in substances which causes them to burn and is released when they burn. Right. Uh, and because there is actually nothing like that, yeah. there is actually we actually once we realise that we, there is no point in referring to such a stuff anymore. Yeah. And so we should just let go of the concept. Likewise with witches. Um, the point of talking about witches is to talk about or refer to beings with supernatural powers. Uh, when we discover that there are no such beings, then that undermines the whole point of trying to refer to any. Right. So Joyce's idea, I think, is that in the case of morality, the point that morality still has is not a referential point. It has a practical use of influencing people's behaviour, expressing how we feel, but that the referential point of moral concepts is to be able to refer to properties that have, or facts that have, um, absolute authority. And because there is no absolute authority, therefore, you know, there is no point for a concept that refers to it. It was so weird when I read The Myth of Morality, which is Joyce's book from 2001. The first half of the book is pretty much his case for the truth of error theory. And one of his main claims there was that we should give up moral discourse because it has no point once we realize that a central point of it is absolutism and as absolutism is false. But then the second half of his book, he spends entirely on why there is a point to moral discourse. And, uh, and it's, it's not necessarily, it's, well, it's obviously not a referential point to absolutism, but the point of moral discourse is something like uh, it's useful for producing human societies that we want to live in or something like that in, in, in terms of uh, if I want to give up smoking I might reflect on smoking and entertain the thought in my mind that it's absolutely morally wrong or something like that and that might help me achieve that end uh, so in the first half and I don't think I quite summed that up properly but um, so apologies well, to Joyce. Let me correct you sure, on, on one you. point. One yeah. thing you said right at the start was that in the first part of the book he, he argues that we should give up moral concepts. And he never he never argues for that. Um, what he's interested in arguing for is that um, moral claims are false, but that we should give them up is not something... Um, that we should give up moral vocabulary, moral practice, is not something that he ever wants to argue for. Right. Um, Thanks so, for correcting me. Yeah. Um, so... You've kind of explained Joyce's position on the whole, the referential point of moral discourse, that sh that should all be abandoned because it refers to absolutism, or refers to something that ass assumes absolutism as absolutism is, is false. 
Uh, but you say there's another way to look at this. We might consider not what the point of moral discourse is, but what the essential application conditions of moral terms are. What do you mean by that? Um, well, let, let me um, go at this a slightly different way. Um, once you distinguish between different kinds of point that um, a discourse might have, and you say, well, um, there's referential point, but then a discourse can have a purpose which is not referential, then that opens the possibility of explaining the um, apparent absolutism of moral discourse as being not part of its referential point, but, but some other part of its point. That is, that you can accommodate the appearances of moral practice without having to claim that it's in, it intends to refer to um, absolutely authoritative properties or facts. Right. Well, in the first part of the paper, I argue that um, moral language can serve the purposes that we want it for without this absolutism being built into the concepts themselves, without it referring to entities in the world which have this absolute authority. In the second part of the paper, though, I, I ask the question, well, how do we determine what our concepts refer to, what, what, what they mean? And I suggest a view which, which seems intuitive to me, which is that um, it's the essential application criteria, conditions, which people use. So you can test with thought experiments. You describe possibly, Im maybe impossible scenarios to people and see whether they would be inclined to use the word about that case or not. Right. So the point here is, is to argue that even if people are convinced that their moral concepts are absolutist, nonetheless, they're not. Right. And you said, you know, I, I did you use, use the word arrogant? Um, you're not the first person to suggest this. I mean, as a graduate <laughs> student, I argued for something like this. Uh -huh. And the first question I got from the audience was, why are you so arrogant? <laughs> and the point being, I'm telling everybody that they're wrong about their own concepts. Right. Um, the idea is, you know, if you, if you want to know what somebody's concept is, you look at the conditions under which they think it's appropriate to apply it and under the conditions in which they do not. So... We can begin by thinking about motion concepts. So the idea is, Joyce's idea is that um, you know, once upon a time, ordinary people's understanding of motion was absolutist. There was such a thing as absolute motion. But, of course, there isn't such a thing as absolute motion, and so you have to ask, what is it that people were being sensitive to? What, what is it that people were responding to when they categorized something as moving or not moving? And I think pretty clearly what's going on is people were noticing change in position relative to something else. Yeah. Typically, when you think of something as moving absolutely, typically you're thinking of it as changing position in relation to the Earth. Right. And so even people who might espouse an absolutist theory of what motion is, when they make judgment what we call first-order judgments about whether or not something's moving, what they're doing is they're responding to um, something's change in position relative to something else. And so the suggestion is that's enough to make it the case that those people's motion concepts were actually concepts of relative motion. It's just that 
they hadn't re reflected on them sufficiently to realize that their own concepts of motion were relative. Mm -hmm. And that's easy to understand because um, there's a ubiquitous framework there, the, the, the framework of the Earth. If you're evaluating things, the motion of things in relation to the Earth, the Earth's always there, um, it's always constant in your experience, and so you would just assume it and you'd fail to recognize the role that it's playing in your own judgments of motion. Yeah. But nonetheless, it is playing that role. It's an important yeah. part of your concept of something moving. <clears throat> um, so I suggest something similar is going on. And that's why I think it, it's appropriate to say that ordinary people's judgments of motion um, are true, even if they're absolutists about motion and they don't believe that all motion is relative. Um, they're true because you know, the concept that they're actually applying is sensitive to um, motion relative to a framework. Mm -hmm. Now, if you apply that then to the moral case and ask, given that there aren't any absolutely authoritative moral facts and properties, what is it that people's moral judgments are sensitive to when they judge something to be right or wrong? And it seems that to me that quite clearly... Um, people judge something to be morally right or wrong depending on how it stands in relation to the ends or the standards or the norms that they endorse or they subscribe. So that suggests to me that ordinary people's moral concepts are actually concepts of uh, how actions etc. stand in relation to certain standards, ends, norms. And that because things, because actions do stand in those in certain relations to stands, standards, ends or norms. To try to keep it simple, let's just say you know certain actions are um, compatible with certain norms. Because things do stand in those relations, therefore they, it's it can simply be true that they're right or that these actions are right or wrong, and that that's enough to secure the truth of ordinary people's moral judgments. Um, even if they make this false assumption that uh, right or wrong is really absolute. Yeah, and I think one of the examples you give, or one thing that helps us think about this, is that just like the Earth is ubiquitous, and therefore we don't even notice that we're using it as a frame of reference that is arbitrary. We could be using the sun, but we aren't standing on the surface of the sun all day. So that's why we assumed that our motion judgments were absolute even though they were really re relational relational to the earth mm -hmm. the same thing is kind of true in the moral sense at least until very recently because individual societies had a fairly universal moral code to which everything was related so people living in those societies wouldn't necessarily even notice that there would be another frame of reference to to use. Um, it's murder is wrong in our society. That seems absolute because I don't know anyone who thinks that murder is right. So their own report of what they're doing is that they're making an absolute claim even though they just don't realize that it's a relational claim because they don't know any other frame of reference. Now recently that would be undermined and perhaps that might explain why we 
perhaps have more relational views of value now than societies did 300 years ago because cultures are interacting now and we realize, oh my gosh, there are people who don't think that way. Um, so that might go a long way toward explaining why the assumption of absolutism is so persistent in our moral concepts. Yes, um, I do believe that. And it's also part of my explanation of why error theory might be more prevalent among New Zealanders and Australians. Um, this is this is pure speculation and, uh-huh. and so forth. But if if what I have been saying about moral concepts is right, then there's going to be more sensitivity to the fact that there are different standards in countries which are more heterogeneous that are mixing pots culturally. Yeah. There's another, in my view, very important factor uh, which can't be overlooked, and that's the rhetorical utility of speaking as if there was only one framework. Mm-hmm. That's a very important idea in my own research. Yeah. That um, what speakers do, in effect, by taking a stand and refusing to acknowledge the existence of any other legitimate standpoint to evaluate things in relation to is you make a rhetorical you put a rhetorical demand express a rhetorical demand that other people also honor respect uh, subscribe to that same that same standard mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's a very important part of why morality appears to be categorical it's because we we're taking a stand well now I'd kind of like to venture beyond your paper, The Error and the Error Theory, you argue in The Error and the Error Theory that morality is not necessarily centrally committed to absolutism. So what does that, what does that leave you with? Um, what do you think moral terms do mean? Um, and do they refer to anything that exists? Yes, I, I do believe that uh, moral terms refer and that they refer successfully. And I take the view that the right way to understand moral talk is to look at the words we use and look at the broader patterns of the way we use them. So the central moral terms, words like good, bad, right, wrong, ought, ought not, are not exclusive to moral moral discourse. Yeah. We use them every day in all sorts of very ordinary ways. And so... I think the right approach to understanding their moral use is to try to get clear on what they ordinarily mean. Um, and then once we have an understanding of that, we can work out what's special about moral use. Mm-hmm. I think that these normative words, good, bad, right, wrong, ought, ought not, do have uh, a clear descriptive meaning, that we do use them to state facts. Um, so just to tell you what I think, there's a lot of different views in the same ballpark. But I think that uh, whenever we say something is good, we have in mind some end or goal or outcome, and we call something good if we think it promotes that end, goal, or outcome. Uh, so to take an old example, uh, if you call a, um, if you say that a certain knife is good for spreading butter, right? There's a goal or outcome you have in mind: spreading butter uh, effectively with with ease. Um, and then you know, certain knives, you know, a, a blunt butter knife, is good for that purpose. It promotes that goal. Whereas, say, a, a, a serrated knife is bad for that purpose. Uh, it doesn't promote that goal. 
Um, so that, that's supposed to be a very general account of what it means for something to be good, generally. Yeah. So what about in the moral cases? Well, to apply that to the moral case, um, the natural thing to think is that a moral good is good in relation to a moral goal or end. And um, you know, there's room for different views on what a moral goal or end is, but um, take, for example, the view that a moral end is um, increasing happiness in the world. Right? Then an action is morally good if it increases the amount of happiness in the world, if it promotes happiness in the world, and it's bad um, if it does the reverse. Uh, and that's, on the face of it, a pretty plausible account of what moral goodness and badness is. There's all sorts of issues, of course, uh, but set them aside. But then the objection in philosophy to giving that sort of analysis of moral goodness is the categorical objection. The objection that, you know, um, it's morally good to... You know, charity is morally good even if some, even if the agent doesn't care at all about increasing happiness in the world. Causing doesn't really help me. What happens when I pause as I just get frozen? Um, well, it, so This doesn't have to be organized like a journal article. Yeah, uh, I, I'm just I appreciate you thinking about, about your answers, but uh, it's, it's fine to be just a yeah. free-flowing conversation as well. That's right. I mean, I, I, the, the part of the problem is I, I knew what I wanted to say, and then I forgot it. <laughs> and when I have to rely on my memory, then I'm in trouble. Um, it's all right. Okay. One day we'll have... You know, chips in our brains that'll make memory. That's right. Um, so okay, yes. But the quest the question is how to understand. I do not want to deny that morality is categorical, in a way that ordinary evaluative and normative talk is not. But I think there's a question of how you interpret or understand the categoricity. Mm -hmm. um, of morality. And it goes back to a distinction that Philippa Foote drew um, back in the 1972 paper. Um, she pointed out that there's a difference between um, applying certain, uh, well she was interested in ought, but applying oughts categorically. So regardless of what you might care about, you ought to do this. And whether or not those oughts are reason-giving categorically. Um, so etiquette was her example, and it's a nice example. When you say, you know, you shouldn't talk with your mouth full, we don't sort of condition that on what you might care about. Yeah. We don't say, well, you know, if you don't want to offend people, then you shouldn't talk with your mouth full. Or if you want to be genteel, then you shouldn't talk with your mouth full. No, the normal way of putting it is, you know, if you're talking to your kids around the table, you shouldn't talk with your mouth full. Yeah. Um, but nobody much thinks that etiquette is categorically reason-giving. That is, that you have a reason not to talk with your mouthful, no matter what you care about. Um, the natural way of explaining that is that when you make the categorical claim you ought not to talk with your mouthful, that there's a demand being made. It's just being uh, assumed or expected of you, in a normative sense, that you do care um, about not offending other people. Mm. Um, and that's why it's not necessary to say you know, if you care about not offending other people. Right. 
And so uh, really my way of understanding the categoricity of morality is an extension of the same point, that when you say that something's morally good, that it morally ought to be done, you are expecting that certain goals or ends are going to be of, going to be of importance, are going to be cared about by the other person. Mm. Um, and, and there's a rhetorical point to it. It's not just that you're expecting in a psychological sense, you just assume you take it for granted, but you're also expecting in the normative sense. That is, you are behaving as if um, there was no question that everybody cares about this. And that puts a psychological uh, rhetorical, rhetorical pressure on the other person to conform. And that's how I understand the particularly stringent force of moral commands. It's, it's, this, um, it's this rhetorical phenomenon. Um, but that's perfectly consistent with the word good and the word ought meaning the same thing in the moral use that they do in other uses as well. It's mm. just that there's this extra social dimension of making a demand, taking a stand, expecting people to share certain goals. Uh, and that's where I think the, the peculiar force of morality comes from. Mm. Now, a lot, a lot of people are sceptical of this. They think, well, no, this, this undermines the rational authority of morality, that morality has to be uh, it's not just a matter of the speaker making a stand and demanding that um, the other person care about these things. It's that the facts themselves demand it. I think all that talk's just rhetorical posturing, uh, or, or just false. Um, so, you know, people want more oomph out of their morality, but that's a, that's all the oomph that you're going to find, I think. Yeah, yeah. Wow, there's a lot of things I want to say about that, um, or ask you about that. Now, the paper you're referring to is Foote's um, Morality is a System of Hypothetical Imperatives. Okay. Um, my, I think my favorite example of the point that we don't necessarily say, if you want to be genteel, then you ought to do this. Uh, I think my favorite example might have been from you is about uh, football. In an American football game, a coach is going to say, you know, come on, guys! You got to do this. You got to work hard. You got to run hard. You you ought to go over there and just you know give it your 110 percent. And he doesn't need to preface all that with if you want to win the game. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, that's my this. example. Yeah, and uh, and so that's an obvious example of where we don't always preface it with the institution under which we are saying you ought to do such and such. Yeah. So actually, let me jump in there and, and try to make the point clearer because. There are two different ways in which you might fail to, to preface your ought claims with, if you want. Oh, okay. uh, so one case is simply when it's just uncontroversial and clear. So um, I take it that the football case is a case of this. Everybody's on the same page. Everybody's working for the same goal. You don't have to say what the goals are. Um, what's interestingly different about the moral case is that that's often not true. Yeah. Uh, and that's when the rhetorical element comes in. So now imagine a football game where you've got some players on the team who are given up, who are listless, who aren't motivated, and um, you can you can hear sort of the captain in the huddle say, um, so imagine that the ha captain understands that there are some players who couldn't care less, who just want to get to the who just want to get to the dressing to the, to the yeah. um, dressing room or whatever. Yeah. 
and you can hear the, the captain saying, "This is you've got to do this. You know, you have you, uh, you've got to pull your socks up. You yeah. you, um, you ought to run hard." And to understand that as a, as at this point a challenge, um, in, in effect, daring the person to say, "Yeah, but I just don't care about that goal." Um, hmm. And it's it's an it's a use of the coach's or the captain's authority to say, you know, I assume that you care about this. I expect that you care about this. Right. This is what you ought to do. Right. Yeah, and you can see that a lot in common moral language. You know, parents will say, well, don't you want your brother to be happy or something like that? And even if it's clear that you don't want your brother to be happy, it's a, it's a challenge to, yeah. you know, meet the criteria that your parents are putting on you. Yeah, I think it, um, parenting cases are some of the clearest cases of this. Um, you ought not to do that, right? And there's some sort of implicit threat or sanction or, yeah. or danger lurking in the background, which is left unarticulated. Yeah. Well, I want to go back to something you said at the outset of framing this problem, because I really, this is the way I, I love your framing of the problem. Uh, it's to say that it's to recognize that we do use words like good and ought in non-moral cases. So we might help ourselves clarify our concepts by recognizing when the word good is used in a, in a different sense, a generic sense or an institutional sense or a prudential sense, and when it's being used in a moral sense and what's the difference, and then, and then that will help us define what moral good is. Uh, so your suggestion was um, that good means uh, such as to... Uh, something the the ends in question is promote was the word yeah I used. promote the ends in question um, there's a philosopher who's very influential on my moral theory uh, who says that a decent definition for our working term of good is uh, such as to fulfill the reasons for actions in question so applying that to say a case of a robbery we might say that it's good to bring a gun if you want to succeed at this robbery now. Most of us wouldn't think that that's a moral use of the word good. That's just a practical. Or if you're going to say, and, and so the, the reasons for action in question there are the robber's desires to succeed with his robbery. Uh, and that's a sensible use of good. That makes sense to all of us. And then there's another type, which we might say etiquette, uh, you know, the reasons for action in question when we're making etiquette claims of goodness would be um, the... Uh, say desires of people to get along and not have conflict or something like that or um, just stay within the societal norms so that people don't feel uncomfortable or something like that and then uh, this philosopher's proposal I don't think he's actually said this but this is my interpretation uh, of Alonzo Fife is to say that uh, what's different about moral discourse and moral uses of the word good and similar terms is to say that uh, it's a universal consideration of the reasons for action. So we might understand that the pedophile has desires to abuse children uh, and that maybe has some normative force even. He might even admit that, but he would say that when we consider all the reasons for action that exist, uh, we have reason for action to condemn the pedophile. 
And uh, in this case, it would not be the reason for action to condemn the pedophile is because it violates the intrinsic value of happiness, um, because neither he nor I think that intrinsic value exists. But we would say that in a universal consideration of reasons for action, desires just so happen to be the only reasons for action that exist. And uh, the pedophile's desire to abuse children is a desire that tends to thwart more, desire, more and stronger desires than it fulfills. And that's the moral reason for action to condemn the pedophile's actions. Um, so the pedophile, it might be good to fulfill the reasons for action that the pedophile has. It might be good to fulfill the reasons for action that exist in a society where there's uh, no consideration of the desires of children, but only the desires of uh, dominant males in the society. I don't if such a society exists, um, but in a universal consideration of reasons for action, it doesn't fulfill the reasons for action in question uh, if we make that consideration universal, and that's what differentiates uh, prudential and institutional goods, uses of the word good, from moral uses of the word good. Um, so uh, I couldn't resist bringing that idea up and just... Uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on okay. that. Yeah, um, it's it's a fairly widespread view that what distinguishes morality is its universality. That morality is the all things considered. Right. Um, I think that's false. Why do I think it's false? One reason I think it's false is that it seems to me perfectly coherent to ask yourself the question, I know that's what I morally ought to do, but what ought I, all things considered, to do? And that suggests to me that morality is not... Moral reasons are not the universal reasons. A second reason I think that's false is because, at least to my ear, moral reasons are all of a certain kind. That is, it seems to me... To me it sounds like a conceptual mistake to say that you, know, you have a moral obligation to do something because it's in your best interest. That there's something characteristically other regarding about morality, yeah. it seems to me. But I don't think that... That would only be true on a, a universalistic account of moral reasons if um, other, other regarding considerations were just carried more weight than, say, per um, individual. Now, so there is a question, you know, what make something a moral reason. Uh, I mean, a lot of philosophers would disagree with me about this, and I, I do suspect that um, partly it, it may turn into a semantic dispute about just what you want to use the word moral to mean. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think there are a lot of philosophers who do mean to use the word moral just to mean, you know, all considered, all things considered, the final, final judgment on things. The reason I resist that is because I don't think that is the ordinary use of the word moral. I don't think that when uh, in everyday life we use the word moral, we're thinking all things considered, for the for the reasons that I've just given. Mm -hmm. um, so what do I think distinguishes the moral? Well, I think it, it's a hard question, and I'm not sure that the concept of moral is entirely determinate or well-formed. Mm -hmm. But my story goes something like this. Uh, in a sense, what distinguishes the moral is not so much the content, but the manner of judgment. 
So if, if you go back, if you think about the distinction I drew before about sort of the rhetorical stance with um, normative judgment, uh, I think there's some sense to say to saying that a judgment is moral if it involves taking this rhetorically demanding stance towards the implicit goals or ends. Hmm. Um, that if, when I judge that something's right, I'm taking a stand and expecting that others are going to share, um, are going to agree with me that the particular goal on ends that I'm assuming are have priority. That's a moralistic stance. And in principle, you could take any type of standard there. So, um, you know, you could be... So here, here's a case to think about. Take a mafia case, right? A couple of mafia hitmen, and, um, you know, the, the ends to which they subscribe is most important are the ends of family loyalty, yeah. right? And then you get a case where they've been sent on a hit and the victim's in front of them, but you know one of them is feeling compassion towards the victim. So that's a child, right? Uh, you're saying, "No, I can't do this. This, is, this just doesn't feel right." The other one says, "No, you have to do this, right? You have to. In what sense have to? Well, in order to um, in order to uh, do what do what's necessary for for the family, you have to do this." But the rhetorical stance is just take it, taking. Um, making a stand on that goal, that goal being the one that I expect of you, that I expect you take, to take precedence, to mm. take precedence for you. There's a sense in which that's a moral judgment, mm. I think. It's a judgment made in a moral kind of way. Mm. Um, however, we wouldn't want to say that, well, that would make you know, killing this person morally right. So um, I, I think there's a, a second sub substantive sense of, of moral. So in that, in that sense, in that other sense, you can talk about there being a lot of different moralities. Uh -huh. There's the morality of the mafia. There's the morality of the neo-Nazis. There's the morality of... You know, there's Christian morality. Um, but I think generally when we say that something's morally right or morally wrong, we don't mean that it's right or wrong in relation to somebody's morality or other. I think rather we're saying that it's right or wrong in relation to whatever it is that we that performs that moral function for us so um, given that we subscribe to certain sets of certain set of ends or standards when we say that something's morally right or wrong we mean it it promotes is consistent with in conformity with um, the values the ends and standards that um, have the, have the status for us hmm. it's then con somewhat contingent as to what these might be, you know, what are the ends which decent people in our society take to be of fundamental overriding importance? Well, you said that a, a moral judgment, one type of moral judgment would be for the mafia member to assert that killing this person for the purposes of the family would be, that would be a moral judgment in one sense. And then you said that there's a broader sense that we also you Make, in which we make moral judgments, and that is to say that according to standards that we, and I don't think you clarified we, but uh, according to the standards that we hold to, this would be good. And that's another type of moral judgment? The, the question with the second one is um, people who would use the word moral. So if we say it's morally right, it's morally wrong, 
uh, what do we mean to signify there? I mean, I, I think that what we're signifying, we use the word moral as in morally wrong to point towards certain ends that we have in mind and that they, they, they're the ends that we, the speakers, take to be the, um, the important overriding ends. Uh -huh. So that means that if one person says it's morally right, somebody else says it's morally right, they're not necessarily talking about the same ends because yeah. there can be um, disagreement or difference in preference as to which ends should be um, overriding yeah. um, and um, take precedence. Now, as far as I can tell, the, the view that you're endorsing is just relativism. Is that a correct characterization? It's relativistic in a sense. Um, I hesitate to call it relativism because relativism, at least when people hear the word relativism, they think that it's going to involve the following sort of claim. That, say I'm evaluating what's right or wrong for, for different people to do. Um, a relativist, as I conceive of, of moral relativism proper, um, my view would be relativistic if I were to say, well, what's right or wrong for you might be different from what's right or wrong for you. But according to, in my view, any person's moral judgments are always going to be relativized to the values that they themselves, the ends that they themselves hold important. Mm -hmm. um, so my moral judgments are not going to be relativistic in the sense that I'm going to think that different people ought to do different things. Right. What you ought to do, in my opinion, is fixed by what I hold to be important. Yeah. It's not fixed by what you hold to be important. Yeah. And so what I think that you ought to do is not going to be different, um, putting aside difference in circumstances, from what I think anybody else is going to do. Um, so in that sense, my view is absolutist. That is, I'm going to expect the same moral behavior and effect of everybody. Mm -hmm. However, there's relativism here in the sense that all my moral judgments are relativized to a particular standard. Mm -hmm. But the relativization happens to, it occurs to the speaker's standards, not to the agent's standards. Mm -hmm. So you might distinguish between speaker-relative theories of morality and agent-relative theories of morality. Mm -hmm. Mine's a speaker-relative version of morality, but I think when people talk about moral relativism, they usually mean agent-relative right. theories of morality. Right. And certainly in one sense that a lot of people would think is important, your view is not absolutist in that there's there seems to be no way we can step outside of the speaker's ends and say that speaker's ends are more valuable than that speaker's ends. We can say that, but in saying that we are not stepping outside of any ends whatsoever. Yeah. So the view is it's perspectival to make a normative judgment you are always occupying some perspective. You're always presupposing some ends or goals or desires. Um, and that, I think, is absolutely essential to, to evaluation, to, um, to a normative perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can contrast this with um, the work of the New York philosopher Thomas Nagel, mm -hmm. who... Um, 
has a book called The View from Nowhere where he, where he argues that if you want to know one of the things he argues is that if you want to get to real value to what's truly valuable then what you want to do is transcend subjective perspectives des particular desires and when you get to the view from nowhere um, that's when you see what's genuinely valuable right that to me gets things entirely wrong I think if you attain a view from nowhere, if you really distance yourself, sort of in a, in a Buddhist or Stoic way, from all desires and concerns, then the world will appear valueless. Yeah. Then nothing will matter. Yeah. Um, yep, I, I would agree. And that's the that would be the Humean view. That it's a, yeah. And so at that level, you've reached a Humean or a Nietzschean. I should say that my inspirations were ultimately Nietzsche, Nietzschean, okay. Humean. But um, in, in contemporary philosophy, this is considered a Humean view. Right. Uh, but it goes back to the question asked by Aristotle: um, you know, Do I desire something because I think it's because I believe it to be good, or do I believe it good because I desire it? Um, Asked in that form, the question is a little bit too simple, but it, it um, understood as the issue of which is more fundamental, human motivation or normative facts. And I think this is a deep divide in contemporary, not just contemporary, but um, throughout the history of philosophy, a deep, deep divide in, in normative philosophy. And I'm squarely on the side that thinks that... Um, Human motivation comes first, and normative facts are derivative right. on human motivation. Yeah. So, to, well, to tie it back up to the, the issue of the error theory. Um, sure. I mean, I, I think you can see the error theory as motivated by a human perspective on normativity, that ultimately um, is motivation which comes first, coupled with. Uh, a conviction that moral concepts are committed to things being the other way around. That the normative comes first, and what's morally right or wrong is independent of what anyone cares about. Right. Um, and then the error theorist was responding to that tension by saying, well, then morality has to go. Um, and what I take myself to be doing in my paper is showing that... Um, the appearances of morality, our, our moral practices, are compatible with the motivation coming first. Right. With motivation being um, more fundamental than the normativity. Right. So what problems are you researching right now, and what do you think are the big questions for metaethics in the next 20 years? Um, what am I researching right now? I'm working on a book. I had a, a year off recently on fellowship where I produce most of the draft of a book, which I have to finish within a year or so. And the book is tying together my, my views on normativity as articulated in um, a number of papers that I've written. And most of my work is focused these days on normative language. Uh, the idea is that when we get clear on what words like good and ought and reason mean, um, then that helps us solve um, mediethical problems. Mm -hmm. uh, and so increasingly I, my work is overlapping with work in linguistics 
Um, and attention to language um, was very much the fashion in um, Anglo-American philosophy um, early in the 20th century. Uh, then, but the last few decades, there's been a backlash against it, and certainly in metaethics, for a long time, quite a long time now, people have thought that um, studying normative language is a um, is a dead end. Hmm. Uh, it's a wrong turn. That you know, what what really matters is um, not the word good or the word wa- the word ought, but goodness and what ought to be done. Uh, and that the focus on language is is misdirected. Mm. Um, I think that's mistaken. Um, I'm working to try to show that the meaning of language really is important, and it holds the key. Understanding language holds the key to solving a lot of many ethical problems. And I think the tide is turning, increasingly, part, partly as a result of the fact that our understanding of language um, over the last uh, few decades has. Um, become far more sophisticated than it was before. And so actually, so if you want bold, bold statements, it's this. <laughs> I think that most of the puzzles in normative and metaethics since Plato and Aristotle are really um, generated by mysteries, um, lack of understanding of how we use language, how we use normative language. And that when we unlock the key to understanding our language use, we will actually solve most, if not all, of meta- our meta-ethical problems. Mm. That's my view. Um, and that, that's going to be a very controversial claim. But the proof's in the pudding. You have to see what can actually be done. And the real key is pragmatics. Uh, I think people have failed... Have rejected the right views because of puzzles about the things we say and the things we think, which didn't seem to be compatible with the theories of what good and right and so forth could mean. But that the real explanation is that considerations of the way we use language and context in order to communicate in a a rich setting with each other um, is this very important dynamic, um, which once you understand it, it enables you to see how certain theories about what goodness and rightness are can be correct, despite certain appearances. And that may all sound very abstract and cryptic, but to try to connect it up with something we've already talked about, um, this whole idea that the categoricity of morality is ultimately to be explained as a rhetorical phenomenon is perhaps the central application of this point. Mm-hmm. Um, that people who concluded that moral good just couldn't mean the same thing as ordinary good because of this categorical character of moral discourse uh, simply overlooked the possibility that we could be using ordinary concept of good in a special special way to communicate certain things over and above what the word actually means. Mm. Um, that's the main focus of my research. Well, if an analysis of language is going to help us to solve all the meta-ethical problems, I guess I shouldn't start a PhD program and that meta-ethics will be solved by the time I'm out of time.
Oh, what's ha- what's happening is I believe I, I'm somebody who believes that progress in philosophy is real, but slow. Yeah. And um, one thing about philosoph- philosophical problems is that they're deep. Yeah. Which means that there are many different levels of adequate of solution. So at a very vague level, um, so whenever you whenever you've answered one question to your satisfaction, there are going to be further questions, deeper questions. Um, so what I think is happening in a lot of areas of philosophy is just increasing sophistication in the questions being asked mm-hmm. and answered. Yeah. Um, I don't think we're anywhere close to um, answering all the all the questions of philosophy yeah. anytime soon. Yeah. Well, in addition to your own work, what do you think are the big problems for meta-ethics in general over the next couple of decades? I actually don't think it's possible to predict the developments in at least this field. When I look at the way that the field has developed, you, you get maybe three to five year fads. Let me put it this way. If, if it were clear now what would be the hot issues in 20 years' time, we'd be working on those hot issues right now, and they'd be hot issues right now. So the way philosophy, philosophical research always seeks out novelty, um, new approaches, new problems. Mm. And so what will make the hot issues of 2020 hot issues is in part the fact that no one will have thought about them <laughs> prior to 2020. Right. Um, so for that reason, I, I think it's probably impossible for me to say what I think the future direction. In part, it will depend on who is who's victorious in the current current battles. Yeah. And perhaps not in the way you'd think. You might think that well, but you know, who, whoever has the preponderance of success mm-hmm. in contemporary debates, you might think that that means well, they're going to be controlling the agenda ten years from now. No, I think the opposite is true. Whoever wins out this round of the dialectic is going to become the main target of the next round of the dialectic. Right. Well, that's probably true. I think of, like, logical positivism. The success of logical positivism in the first half of the century didn't mean that that would be the theory. That meant that anybody who wanted to make a name for themselves would find a flaw in logical positivism, and they did. That's right. So, um, if things go as well as me, well for me as possible, then this means that the next 20 years of meta-ethics will consist in showing that I'm on I'm, the I'm stake. Right. Well... At least you have that to look forward to. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, I thought I'd ask, I'd end with a question that may be of interest to a lot of my listeners because um, the other focus of my of my site is philosophy of religion. So I don't know how much you've explored this question in your own uh, research, but it's very often claimed by theists and even some atheists that morality with God is impossible, that if you remove God from the equation, then there's no metaphysical uh, foundation for objective moral facts and what's your response to that claim? Well I think it's false and if I'm right about what we mean by moral claims then um, there's a pretty simple explanation why it's false that um, you know, moral right and wrong is just a matter of conformity with the ends which we we hold to be fundamentally important and there's no room in that story 
well, I, I was going to say there's no room in that story for God, but there is room in that story for God. It's just not a ne- necessary space. Yeah. That is, you know, religious people will often think that, will, will tend to think that the ends that are truly important are ends which, ends like pleasing God or being with God or something like that. Right. But that's just, you know, one one system of moral norms among many. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of theists would push back and say well, many different things, um, but they probably they would say, well, that's fine, but then you're just we're not talking about the same morality. Uh, we're not we're not using that word in the same way. So the way that I'm using morality does depend on God, and that very well might be true. Um, yeah, well, there's a sense in which I agree, right? Because since there's this relativistic element in my understanding of um, moral language, it's true. It's true that you know when the devout religious person says this is wrong, what they mean is, in effect, um, this goes against God's word. Right. Because the ends that they care about are the ends of conformity with God's word. But it doesn't mean that, I think, we're talking a different language. Because if I'm right, then moral language is just this particular application of very general evaluative terms. The way I would look at it, on it is that um, people for whom God is determinative of morality um, are making evaluative judgments relativized to God's wishes or um, something of that kind. But that that's not so very different from what I'm doing when I make moral judgments relativized to the well-being of persons. And that there really is, I think, a kind of disagreement which goes on when these two different kinds of judgments um, come, into, come into conflict with each other. What's really going on is not a disagreement over facts, but a conflict over um, what to fundamentally care about. Yeah. Uh, and when you say, when the theist says, um, you know, if God commands you to, if, if God, suppose God were to command you to kill somebody, then that would be morally right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I say no, even if God commanded you to kill someone, that would not be morally right. Mm-hmm. In a sense, there isn't a disagreement, because we're both, on my view, we're asserting non-contradictory things. But what's really going on, the important thing that's going on here, on my view, is that you're taking a stance on the fundamental overridingness of a certain goal, which is conforming with God's wishes. I'm taking a stance on a conflicting goal, promoting people's well-being and that's what Charles Stevenson uh, decades ago called a disagreement in attitude we have a conflict over what's fundamentally most important Mm -hmm. and that's a real disagreement of sorts well as usual every question opens up 30 other questions that I don't have time to ask that's the way it goes in philosophy it does it has been fascinating and fun thank you very much for your time thank you It's a pleasure.